Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hey there, heroes. I've got a real, real good episode this week, but first I have so many announcements. They're all really great, though, so stick around a sec while I tell you what's up. First of all, this week was OneShot's 200th episode, which is astounding and incredible. Without James and Cat and OneShot, Modifier and so many other cool shows you probably like wouldn't be here. If you're looking for a way to channel that love and gratitude, well, here's how you can do that. To prepare for our network's fourth anniversary, we're hosting a Patreon drive. The OneShot Network is funded almost entirely by listeners who support us on Patreon. That pays for equipment and games, takes us to conventions, and helps support the people who bring you these shows, like me. We're hoping to bring on lots of new contributors, and to do it, we're bringing back one of the most popular actual plays we have ever done. In order to unlock Feng Shui 3 as the anniversary series that One Shot will feature in August, we want to increase our Patreon to $7,500 a month. If you listen and you like what we do, that goes for any of these shows, you guys. Consider supporting us at the $5 level. That gets you access to the secret archive, where you'll be able to listen to the first part of Feng Shui 3 right now. Just head over to patreon.com slash one-shot podcast for more information. But what kind of new contributors, you may be asking yourself? What kinds of new shows? Well, I am so happy to welcome established shows System Mastery and Neoscum to the OneShot Network. System Mastery takes a look at old and kind of terrible RPGs for everyone's amusement, and Neoscum is a Shadowrun actual play podcast. Also, brand new show Adventure started this week on Tuesday, which is an actual play podcast about fandom hosted by Pranks Paul, who you might remember from the episode where we got a lawyer. Their first episode is a really fun Pokemon adventure with some of your favorite network folks, so go check it out. Lastly, I'll be heading up a new show later this year called Tales from Thetis. It's another actual play focused on the Dragon Age universe, telling smaller stories anthology style, with a rotating cast and a few different game systems as they suit our needs. You can follow Thetis Pod on Twitter for updates and news as I have it. I'm not totally sure what that's going to mean for Modifier's schedule, but we'll tackle that together later this year. Okay, heroes, that's all the network stuff. I want to add one more plug here at the beginning before we dive into the show that's one of a personal nature. Some of you know that I've been back in school these last two years, completing an animation degree. I've spent the last four months working on a demo for a Magical Girl video game that's part visual novel, part tactics RPG. It's a game about everything I love and everyone I love, and I want to make it a reality. I have a Patreon that you can find over on my personal Twitter, Meglish, M-E-G-L-I-S-H, and it's just a dollar a month for full access to the dev blog, and more. I hope you'll check it out. Okay, let's do a show. This week, I talked to Fraser Simons, who's putting out a supplement for his game, The Veil. The supplement is called The Cascade. It's a cyberpunk game with a unique personality and outlook, and Fraser and I spend a good while talking about what makes cyberpunk cyberpunk. I'm really excited we got to have this conversation, and I learned a ton about the genre. I hope you enjoy it, too. Let's get to the show. All right, so joining me this week is Fraser Simons to talk about an upcoming supplement for his game, The Veil. The supplement is called Cascade. Uh, and before we jump into any of those, because we haven't had the pleasure of having you on the show before to discuss The Veil, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm Fraser Simons. I'm the designer of a, a cyberpunk game called The Veil. I also put out a small story game called Young at Heart. That's a sports drama um, story game that is sort of living in the same space as For Love of the Game, that Kevin Cosner movie, um, made that into oh. a story game. And I put out an AP of it, too, on Comic Strip AP with the uh, the Gauntlet community. That's how a lot of people know me now, I think. Oh, very cool. So I, like I said, we haven't been able to talk about uh, The Veil with you on the show before, so I, I do want to do that before we jump into the Cascade. But I actually want to back up uh, a little further than I think I, I usually do. And 
The Veil is a cyberpunk game, and we've had a couple of cyberpunk games uh, we've talked about here before. Um, and you and I have talked on Twitter a little bit about cyberpunk as a genre and sort of what it is and what it means. But uh, I'd, I'd like to have you talk about it here a little bit. So like what cyberpunk is and what drew you to it and all that kind of good stuff. Sure. So the first thing that um, I think I had an experience with is probably Blade Runner, but I was too young. Like my, my dad was so excited about it and he showed it to me and I was so young that I was kind of like, um, this movie's boring. <laughs> I was like, it's kind of neat. Yeah. Like it has a cool aesthetic and I like his gun and like, uh -huh. you know, it, it, but it didn't like blow my mind like it does now. Like I could watch that movie once a week and like dissect it and, and still find new stuff um, going on with it. And I read articles on it still and find out stuff that I never <laughs> knew, but yeah, young Fraser, he, he didn't get it. Um, and then the next thing, <laughs> um was altered carbon that i read and that's when it really kind of clicked with me and i didn't really um understand what it was as a genre i just was really hooked on all the motifs going on with it and it was also the first time mm -hmm. that i kind of read a sci-fi book that had that kind of prose because i hadn't read neuromancer yet altered carbon was sort of my coming to the, the genre. Um, so um, it was just really interesting to me to weave prose together with technology and then comment on the human condition and still have the veneer of this like action flick to propel all of this stuff forward. Um, so that's when I was mm. like, Oh hell yes, I got to, you know, get more into this. And then it's just sort of uh cascaded i guess from there and um <laughs> hey yeah I, I just started devouring everything um that i could get my hands on and i'm i'm still doing it like i i, I have a pretty serious amazon book problem right now <laughs> so <laughs> I, yeah I just, i'm familiar with that one yeah. <laughs> yeah like and now i've sort of moved on to um even trying to get a hold of academic work in it as well which is really surprisingly hard when you're not an Ooh. academic because <laughs> it's all part of an academic library yeah. and if you're not in school it's uh, yeah like either it's a really cool school and they're like here is everything for free or they're like gatekeeping it and you'll never get your hands on it mm -hmm. and it's like for instance this new one that i bought beyond cyberpunk um new critical perspectives that i'm reading it it's not very big it's probably 200 pages it looks like the size of Apocalypse World's soft cover, and it was like uh, seventy mm. bucks to get it because it because I'm not part of the academic you know, library. Jeez, yeah. So, yeah, those ones are really expensive. Man, you gotta you gotta make friends with people who have edu email addresses and just. <laughs> I know, right? I'll to, just be like to find things. <laughs> well, and the nice thing is, is our community does have a lot of academics in it, right? So I could just be like. <laughs> Will you be my friend? <laughs> yeah. And can I you and read books? <laughs> Apparently. Uh, uh -huh. It would be kind of a strange relationship, but whatever. <laughs> Let me read your papers. Yeah, just just a couple. Get them a sandwich or something and just sit there and, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's the, that's the price of admission. Hey, it's it's a lot better than, than what they're going for now. So what defines the genre to you? Like, what are what are things that make cyberpunk cyberpunk? So for me, um, the primary ingredient is commenting on the human condition. And it's um, mm -hmm. got an extrapolation quality to all of the text. It's all about looking to the future, um, judging by what we're like, how we're interacting with technology now, and then radicalizing it. So it's like... Um, for, you know, Neuromancer, it was like, oh, you know, this thing called a personal computer is going to be crazy. What's that going to be like? And then he went to like, I'm going to be inside that computer. <laughs> right. Um, and the texts are always something to do with that. It's always extrapolating something. And first wave is always very nihilistic, right? Like, not good things are happening from this. But from that, there's now biopunk and solar punk and you know, there's a, there's some hope there <laughs> as opposed to first wave where they're like, nope, it's over. We can just live inside the computer. It's all we have. 
Oh, that's that's really good news for me. I was talking to somebody, uh, I was talking to Dan this morning, actually, about cyberpunk, and I think that might be one of the things that I have the most trouble with, is the, the hopelessness of a lot of cyberpunk is kind of a turnoff, so I didn't know about all this other stuff. Yeah, like, the the solar punk movement within cyberpunk is very much a thing now, and it's it's growing bigger now. Um and solar punk is all about the fact that we might use technology to, uh, like, save ourselves instead of it being our destructor. Like, we might use the technology that we're developing now to heal the planet instead of destroy it. And we might use it to um, return to, like, a more humane, um, natural, organic existence uh, than, you know, mm. being grafted to cybernetics and propelled into, like, cyberspace and stuff like that. That's really rad. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And then on, I mean, on the other hand, then you have um, the Wind Up Girl, which is still kind of bleak, but also kind of beautiful, and it's biopunk. So it's it's, I, I think it's dancing that edge pretty nicely, and it's all about um, uh, our food supply and how that's going to change with technology. Like things are gene hacked, and and people are hacked, and the the main character is very um, subservient and a product of technology in itself like um she's she's extremely oppressed but um it's a very much a story of her kind of um breaking the the shackles and the bonds of that at the same time that humanity is sort of paying the price for the things that they've they've done it's kind of like a comeuppance thing so it, it sort of does both but it it is pretty hard to read if you are um like triggered by stuff that um is kind of heavy towards women like i had to put it down mm. two or three times cuz that's really hard for me to read but um it's it's very much in keeping yeah. with the genre and when she does eventually you know free her herself from the shackles it's all the more uh liberating cuz you've kind of you know experienced that stuff with her and it's sort of um, like it's a lot better than maybe Stevenson's stuff where in Diamond Girl, for instance, there's, there's a similar thing, like a, a rape scene and it's done really poorly. Uh, I think as most first wave and second wave stuff does things like that yeah. poorly because it's a bunch of, you know, white, white guys <laughs> writing about stuff that maybe, <laughs> maybe they shouldn't have. <laughs> And, um, he kind of removes her agency from the scene and, um, I, I couldn't get through that book anymore. Like it was towards the end of it and I was semi enjoying it. And just because he couldn't handle, uh, that and, and handled it sort of like a, a tropiness of Game of Thrones, I was just like, nope, Stevenson's not for me. And I just yeah. passed it aside. And I had a similar experience with Snow Crash with YT. I, do, I think he has some problems mm. writing female characters, and I think that um, the first wave of cyberpunk has uh, those problems, but the nice thing is his second wave uh, is basically a whole bunch of feminists taking those tropes and turning them on the head and uh, exploring some really great stuff. Like, uh, a lot of people have never heard of He, She, and It, and it's amazing. It's... Uh, uh, it was recommended actually on G plus from Jessica Hammer and it's cyberpunk, but it's got a very um, good protagonist that um, is sort of is still oppressed by the, you know, the, of course, capitalism's involved in globalization. And what happens is uh, when a female writer comes to the table and, uh, uses the same tropes for cyberpunk. You get like just a, a way better fiction. She's she's like unapologetically uh, Jewish. She's strong of character. She it starts out with her son being taken away, and and a very bleak um, humanity is kind of injected into the fiction. But then uh, through a story her grandmother is telling her about her past and kind of a golem creationist myth thing happening um coupled with technology oh, um cool. they totally turn ton of a ton of the cyberpunk tropes on its head and it's it's probably one of the best um cyberpunk fictions i've ever 
ever read, and I hadn't even heard of it until Jessica Hammer brought it to my attention on G+. So there's a lot of cyberpunk out there that people haven't heard of and are probably um, contributions to the genre that are the most relevant and um, interesting fictions you'll ever read, but because it was declared dead, uh, a lot of people were just like, oh, after first wave, it, that's it. Right, but it's it's uh it's very much alive and yeah. still being contributed to and some of the best stories that I've ever read were just like last year. Oh man, those sound incredible. Yeah, like the the kind of fiction that that women have brought to cyberpunk by very cleverly subverting tropes that the male authors have brought and appropriated from other genres to to like amass cyberpunk is incredible. Like, um, the summer prince is set in Brazil in a matriarchal society and it's a commentary on, uh, life and death, uh, in the, in the future after, um, a patriarchal society sort of destroyed itself. Like it's post-apocalyptic, but it doesn't go too into it. And everybody lives in this giant, uh, um, like, mega structure, I guess you could say, but it's a pyramid and it's got the caste system. Mm-hmm. So everyone at the bottom is, you know, low life and everyone at the top is high life and stuff like that. But throughout it, it continually subverts all the mm-hmm. tropes. It's got all the biopunk stuff and it's probably the most beautiful prose I've ever read of any book. And it's, uh, and it's cyberpunk. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see the contributions to the genre um, that uh, yeah you, you'll never really find unless you do some digging into the actual genre. Man, I, I think a lot of us are going to come away with this episode with an Amazon book problem. Like, <laughs> this sounds great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's um, like even after the last anthology of cyberpunk storming the reality studio, there's been a new one um, that there's been some debate about if it's classified as cyberpunk, which I think it is. Um, but even in the anthology, they're like, Hey, we're curating this towards diversity, inclusivity, and we're going to be highlighting, um, people of color and feminists and stuff like that. And of course that raised, you know, an uproar, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it's got the best short stories, um, or short fiction, that I've ever read, and they're all cyberpunk. Like, one of them is about a living city taking care of um, the inhabitants in kind of a motherly way, but in also, mm-hmm. like, an overbearing way. There's a cyberpunk one about a, um, a Middle Eastern guy who is uh, sort of following his faith, but the faith is communicating through his cybernetics. Like, it's sort of sending him text messages and it's like um i'm trying to remember the exact phrase but it'll say like um fear not young warrior um do x and and you will be rewarded kind of thing and it's all about Mm him uh just believing wholeheartedly in faith but it's communicating through technology and a bunch of bad things into him kind of deal um and he's sort of questioning his faith and it's sort of a story about, you know, will he stick it out or not? But I just thought it was so interesting to have a Middle Eastern perspective uh, and a relationship with faith in a cyberpunk story because those those usually don't go hand in hand. It's usually a commentary about one or either or they kind of victimize one or the other, right? Right, so, yeah. Um, oh, I am into there's, that. There's a oh, lot man. of great stories it's um what is it called cyber world tales of humanity's future i think and it's like it's like 15 bucks on amazon and Alyssa wong has a story in it and she's fantastic she's in um which i think she's in lightspeed magazine um maybe apex magazine and a couple other ones she's been winning tons of sci-fi awards and her story was all about um technology being linked to memory and she it was like a an asian assassin to sort of james bond style to uh retrieve somebody's eye because their memories were were stored on that eye and they needed to retrieve it and 
give it to somebody kind of thing. So it was, it was really interesting. And all of the text is pretty, um, um, like it's very, it's very progressive. So if you look on even the Amazon comments for it, you'll find cyberpunk enthusiasts being like, this isn't cyberpunk, you know, this is, this is crap. This is, mm-hmm. this is, you know, we don't know what to call this, but it's not cyberpunk. <laughs> That's for sure. Right. But, um, <laughs> it's just so interesting to me that people define the genre in so many different ways because, uh, generally it's how they enter the genre for one, but also that they don't ever want to concede the fact that words uh, seem to change their meaning, even though we know that they have, right? Like, if you look at mm-hmm. the word literally now, it look it's different than what it was two years ago, and that makes us all sad, I think. But um, the word punk and cyber need to to change with our relationship with technology, just like the text is kind of been saying the entire time. But yet, the people that love cyberpunk yeah. and cyber fiction refuse to acknowledge that punk has changed, right? Like just because that aesthetic is dead doesn't mean that there's no resistance in the world anymore. And I think that, you know, it, it's a, it's disconcerting for people to think that, especially when the generation of punks were probably the same generation that just voted in Brexit and Trump. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. it's, it's uh... problematic to say the least that, you know, punk is dead because, you know, when I was at that age, we were rebelling and we were doing this. But then that same generation is, you know, leading to yeah. questionable things. And then also not acknowledging that uh, other people can contribute to a genre. Because it was essentially declared dead, bef- like, as people of color and feminists started to come to the genre and write about mm-hmm. it. Which is... You know, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, mm. there and I mean, all, the the people that gave birth to it are you know five white guys in Western culture. So as soon as it, it took yeah. time for these words to permeate the world, and when people started contributing to it from across it, by the time they were able to, people were like, "Well, we don't want to be associated with the genre anymore, so let's just call it dead, and we'll be." We'll be postmodern about it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, oh, wow. it's it's really frustrating. Um, in hindsight, reading all these academic papers about how there's such good um, feminism and progressive attitudes and these tropes being turned into something that is actually unique when the the sort of veneer of cyberpunk is just appropriated things from a lot of different genres. Uh, like westerns and stuff like that and the fact that you know cyberspace is is generally uh, feminized and you know these male protagonists would jack in and they would perceive a space that was sort of empty and devoid and then as soon as feminist writers came to it they made it much more rich and 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 interesting because things like trouble and her friends were born and there's a passage that's in Trouble and Her Friends that is like the most chilling. It it's so predictive of what internet space and community has become. And it's all about um essentially it's something like um she predicted the fact that um white males would dominate the space and they would walk about with raised hackles if, you know, anyone was perceived to be encroaching on it. And this was 1991, yeah. I think. So she she saw all mm. of it coming. <laughs> and it's because that she yeah. was a, a a queer author that was familiar with being, you know, ostracized and marginalized in real life. So could write about it in a yeah. in a future way that uh, really spoke to a lot of people. Because even the protagonists are also queer. And it, that whole book is basically mm. about um, trouble and her you know, literally her friends, which are all mostly queer, um, adapting to a world that is changing and doesn't want them. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's very, um, extrapolatively <laughs> correct. I don't think that's two words that are correct. <laughs> it works. <laughs>
asked you, uh, you were talking about uh, red spider white web. Um, right. Yeah. So have, yeah. I just got that in the mail. And um, as far as I know, that's the only contribution to cyberpunk that is from a native American. And the reason why it kept getting like, uh, the reason why I bought it is it kept getting cited in all these papers for being really interesting because um, a lot of first wave cyberpunk fetishizes uh, foreign cultures mm-hmm. and some of it is, you know, uh, native American, but in neuromancer, they do it for the Zionists, right. Who are just like, that's Babylon. I'm not into technology at all kind of deal, yeah. but um, why people keep citing this as being really good is that, it doesn't have any of those tropes at all. And it's from the perspective of a native American. So they find it really fascinating uh, contribution to the genre. I haven't read anything uh, like it so far from what I've um, dived in yet, but uh, it's really cool so far. And it's very um, visceral, (laughs) like, uh, like most cyberpunk. So yeah, it's just really interesting because there's there's those rigid definitions that people place on the genre, like high tech, low life. It's got to have, you know, X, depending on what people are super into for the genre. Like some people are like, if it doesn't have cybernetics, I don't consider it to be cyberpunk. And it's just kind of frustrating talking to those people sometimes because you're like, that's not how genre works. <laughs> you know, you're like, mm-hmm. Like you can't, like there's, there's things that are definitely blurred within genres and it may be hard to classify, but, um, within cyberpunk, there's a lot of different things going on. Like one of the newest books, um, that I've read actually has an alien story in it that is uh, cyberpunk and it's Nigerian psychic cyberpunk. And mm. it's amazing. It's written by Tade Thompson and he manages to make like a first contact story that is cyberpunk because all the um, psychic stuff is done with biotechnology from like a, a foreign environment that's brought to earth and sort of permeates everybody. And there eventually becomes these sort of um, psychic people that are called sensitives. And it was really cool because he, the main protagonist, starts working at a bank and to make a firewall from these people, they would read and put into what's called the Xenosphere um, works of literature so that it was literally like a a barrier of words against people that they couldn't penetrate. Yeah, so they would like, um, one day they would read like Moby Dick and then like the other day they would read something, I don't know, something else that's really dense. And mm-hmm. the idea is that these people that would search for the bank's information would be finding all this other information. So it was like uh, a trap for them that they'd have to wade through all these words and stuff. It was really cool. Oh, man. That is really cool. We're going to have to have a list, <laughs> I think, of all the <laughs> the book club recommendations. Because this, this is stuff that like... I, I had no idea like any of this was happening in in the genre and it's I don't know it's it's awesome. And you you mentioned that a lot of these you've been starting to read like within the last year or two. Um mm-hmm. like it's it's recent stuff. So The Veil, the 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 cyberpunk game that you decided to make, did that sort of like where when did you decide you wanted to make a game out of this genre that you you're clearly very deep in? Um Yeah. Um, I started, man, when was it? It was, it's gotta be like two years ago-ish that I was looking for, um, I was like, um, just getting into small press stuff at that time. Like, um, before that I was one of those people that would go to the Wednesday night encounters and play like (laughs) Pathfinder Mm -hmm. and D&D and stuff. And I was like, you know, not to be too cliche, but but I was like, there's got to be something better, right? Yeah, like, yeah. This is not clicking for me. And my brother, uh, Kyle, designed Worlds in Peril, which is PBTA. And so he got me into that. And for Christmas, he got oh, cool. me uh, Dungeon World. And we did a session of that. And that sort of, like, blew my mind. And then immediately I was like, okay, well, is there... Like, obviously, there's other genres of this because you've hacked it to do superheroes and Mm -hmm. the original is Apocalypse World. 
um, what is there out there for other stuff? And I was like, I would really like to do cyberpunk because I had just read Altered Carbon for, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, like the fifth time or something mm -hmm. like that, right? Um, so then I was like, okay, let's do that. And the only thing I could find that had made reference to it at all was the sprawl. And because I hadn't backed it, I couldn't really get, like, I couldn't find out what it was about or what it was doing. Um, mm -hmm. I think eventually somebody told me that it was kind of like, um, like Dungeon World, which it is with that mission-based structure. But, uh, that cyberpunk to me is not that at all. For me, it's very much, uh, used for extrapolation purposes and for posing questions about our humanity to us in a way that is both like got the veneer of coolness, but has also got um, a way to propel the fiction in a really cool and interesting ways that um, other fiction I kind of find w would be boring without it. <laughs> like yeah. it, it makes it really interesting. So I was like, oh, okay, um, maybe I'll try the sprawl when it comes out. But then um, I think four or five months later, I was designing my own system <laughs> as, mm -hmm. as most first time designers <laughs> are want to do. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, um, I kept showing it to my brother and he was like, mm, I think what you're looking for is honestly like a PBTA hack. And I was like, well, I don't know. Like I had, <laughs> I had this crazy economy for, fighting that was derived from like riddle of steel and then i had like all this uh microscope stuff for extrapolative play and stuff and he was like you're going way overboard on this thing like you need to rein yourself in so then i was like okay well i'll at least try to do pbta see what that looks like and i ended up getting my hooks into that and i think it took me about a year or so to get a playable uh, version of that going and then I started I was pretty hardcore at it I, I started play testing four or five times a week and after every time I would adjust the draft uh, based on play so mm -hmm. I got it ready really quickly and then we uh, when I showed it to my brother afterwards he was like this is actually really cool and you should kickstart it and I was like I don't know if anyone's gonna pay for this kind of thing and he was like I think it'll make 21 grand and I was like that's that's a pretty exact number right like yeah and then that's exactly what it ended up doing on the oh Kickstarter and I was like what is happening but um he's <laughs> he's really um done all his homework on that kind of stuff he's done two kickstarters before and he was oh, very wow. confident in the project in a way that I was not I was just like if you know I would love to make a book of this and eventually um that would be great, but I, I can't see this funding. And then it funded in like a day or something like that. So it was, oh, it was pretty amazing. Um, but I have a, an overall design goal for the veil and the cascade is the second uh, contribution to that design goal, but it will take probably one more uh, supplement and maybe a, uh, one further after that as well. Cause the mm -hmm. overall design goal was actually inspired by Cloud Atlas. Have you seen or read that? I have not. I have not seen nor have I read it. Though I am uh, a little familiar with it through just cultural osmosis. Mm, yeah. So the the um, the movie is similar to the story, um, but a little different, of course, because different mediums. But mm -hmm. um, I'm really attracted to the idea of having a game where you can move the same character uh, between different time periods or even not the same character, but have an exploration through different characters in the same kind of medium. And Cloud Atlas has three separate stories that all climax at the same time and then um, oh. go down and, and they all explore different things. But one is in the distant past. One is in the um, like modern day times for when it was written. And then the third one was sort of a cyberpunk future. And then they wove together to sort of tell like an overall story. And that's what I wanted to do with uh, the veil. But um, I wanted to make it modular because um, people don't have that kind of time <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and um, so I also wanted the base to be a good foundation to work from and also a game that you could assemble whatever kind of cyberpunk that you wanted. So 
that's why the veil is very much geared towards not like my version of cyberpunk but mm -hmm. giving the players the tools to make the kind of cyberpunk that they want because that was really important to me after i started reading all this disparate kinds of cyberpunk um and i wanted to highlight um subverting tropes because it's it's really satisfying and it's also how i think you get really good fiction and it's how um feminist writers got really good fiction out of cyberpunk um when initially it was you know somewhat problematic um so i wanted to give people the tools and you know advice and then just have them not so worry about the confines of the genre and play within it and subvert it when they needed to to really try to make relevant and extrapolative fiction for now so cascade just takes that one step further okay awesome um so so the veil then uh is is more of a framework it's sort of you know gives you pieces and uh, I, like i read through a, a good deal of it and it one of the tools i guess that we're most familiar with with powered by the apocalypse games are the playbooks um, mm -hmm. and you've got you've got quite a few for the veil was it what what is that challenge like i'm always curious what that challenge is like uh to kind of distill a genre into playbooks yeah um, yeah the that's how i mostly saw it as well um i see the playbooks as specific ingredients that you'll be adding to the fiction to get the kind of cyberpunk that you want and then you'll use the setting playbook to sort of like flesh that out and say like okay now we have these themes from these playbooks but now um let's inject the stuff that makes it cyberpunk as well if these themes aren't already doing it mm -hmm. um so uh basically i just started consuming cyberpunk at a rapid rate and i was <laughs> like um if it was interesting i was like how could i make this a playbook um, and the first playbook that I did was Ghost in the Shell, the apparatus, and that sort of gave birth to all of the game, basically. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so the apparatus is all about the major questioning humanity and posing questions to humanity mm -hmm. uh, while she's going through her uh, own story. So that's what I made the, the apparatus playbook. And then I started watching things like the Matrix and Inception kind of has some cyberpunk stuff going on it, uh, so I merged those playbooks. Um, but yeah, all of those playbooks are distilled from a very specific cyberpunk book or themes that I thought meshed well with it. Um, the only one that I think is kind of like an outlier is The Wayward, and that's because it's solar punk. It's more, um, it's very out there tech. And it's mm -hmm. tied to natural resources and it's tied to like a more kind of hopeful future in that uh, you can do something about it. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So it took the longest time for sure to do the playbooks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also assembled the playbooks in a different way because uh, the veil doesn't use traditional stats. It uses emotions. So yeah. all of the playbook moves had to be different because if you look at other ones there's a lot of moves that are like stat swaps and stuff like that and mm -hmm. you can't do that in the veil because <laughs> they don't exist so um all of the moves are very uh, much geared towards having the character be able to do a specific theme uh and inject it into the fiction instead of you know more um maybe meta stuff i guess you could say yeah and and that's that's I think my other like favorite part about this about the veil is the the states that you you will roll instead of stats for these moves and they're they're all based on emotions and feelings and you've got this really cool feelings wheel in the book and everything too to kind of help you determine like what your character is going through while they're doing the thing um how how did you come to that instead of like stats or or anything else that we're we're used to in a powered by the apocalypse game um, yeah, so that came from playing uh, uh, Pathfinder and D&D &D and being really frustrated because I don't think role-playing comes very naturally to me, um, and I wanted a tool to help me do that. And so when you highlight emotions that way, it's um, a lot easier because everybody knows that emotions, they know how that character might express them, 
and you're mm-hmm. specifically focused on one thing. And the saddest thing that I found about encounters was that all these people really wanted to connect with each other. And a lot of them go there um, and don't have necessarily the social skills to make that kind of connection with each other. And the mm-hmm. game doesn't help them do that. Um, like they'll just say, you know, like roll a D20. And even if you give the best speech of your life, uh, it may not matter at all. Mm-hmm. And some people may be really good at being charismatic and other pe- other people not. And I just found it really ironic that a role-playing game doesn't, you know, help you role-play, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not to not to bag on it. Like, I still play those games from time to time, especially when I want a uh, tactical experience. Uh, I really like those games. But mm-hmm. I really wanted people to focus on being able to role-play and also for it to sort of reflect the kind of medium that we're going for. And in most Apocalypse World games, they tell you that you're trying to recreate a movie. So uh, the the biggest thing critiqued in movies is like um, people showing their emotions and you being able to read X from their face and stuff like that. So I just found it kind of uh, the natural step forward, I guess, and the most helpful one in that, you know, when I'm framing you... Uh, pulling the trigger on, you know, this person in the cyberpunk future. Uh, You have to tell me how that makes you feel and what that looks like on screen and maybe even the the colors in the background and the tone of the scene and everything. You have full control over it because you're the one triggering the move and Mm -hmm. you're the one that's telling me about your state. Nobody else has any agency in it except for you. Yeah. And I, I, I want to point out, too, that um, well, we're talking about using emotions to determine, uh, you know, to dictate these roles in a cyberpunk game. And people may be going, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. This is, um, it's different than, like, Headspace, where your your abilities as, say, the, the tech, you, you've decided that uh, hacking is tied to your ego. Therefore, everyone who wants to use hacking must roll with their ego. In the veil... All of these moves, you know, you can do the same exact move five times and every time you do it, it could be totally different because you feel a different way every time you do something, which is is really cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all subjective. It's not tied to, to uh, like traditional use of stats where it's just like mm-hmm. you're going hard, so you're rolling hard kind of thing. It's yeah. uh, It all changes and there's even sort of like this mini game about it because Every time you roll, you add an emotional spike in that stat. Yeah. Uh, but if you roll with the other stat, you could remove it and then uh, in that way mitigate them as you go through. So for people that kind of want a little bit of crunch in it or min-maxers, I think it will appeal to them. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of my other thoughts as I was starting to uh, to grasp this system was, okay, if I'm really good at you know being mad about things, what's 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 preventing me from doing everything mad i guess like my character's just super mad about stuff so he's just mad all the time and you do yeah you get those spikes and that um if you do too many things <laughs> i guess in the same emotion it's it sort of uh weakens the effectiveness of your others uh and it, it does like it, it does alter the way that you play and the way that you're able to handle situations which i think is really appropriate like, yeah and the thing that i think is really funny is that the Ben Mackers will, will be like, oh, well, I'll just, um, like, hypothetically, I could really game this system, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. absolutely. But the thing is, is that you still have to justify it in the fiction, right, to me, or, yeah. like, if I'm running the game and everybody else, or you're going to look really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> or you're going to mitigate everything, and what you do when you mitigate it by rolling with alternate stats every time is actually give a dynamic performance for your uh-huh. character. So I've, I've, I sort of like to laugh about it and say that I tricked them. Yep. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. It's like, if you, yeah, like you can min-max it um, and in turn become a dynamic player by doing it. Or you could just justify it in the fiction and that would be okay with me too. Because either way, it'll lead yeah. to like a really good fiction. So it doesn't matter to me, right? Like the yeah. example that I put in the book even is somebody justifying a different emotion that you wouldn't expect 
and it's by them sort of having a flashback to uh, like a very altered carbon moment where their teacher is telling them how to snipe and it makes them peaceful when they snipe instead of you know angry or, or whatever right so Damn. i encourage it even like do do whatever you want with it but just know that if you're putting something forth in the fiction that isn't going to make sense uh you know the table is going to be like what <laughs> i love that i just I don't know, that makes me really weirdly happy. Just the, the like, haha, gotcha. Now, now you have to play these story games. I know, yeah. Um, and tell I a like, story. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> the funny thing is, is that everyone, literally everyone that I've talked to that said that they're just going to game the system mm-hmm. has given the best performance that I've ever seen. <laughs> Beautiful. <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well and done. It's Very. really funny. Um, and it, and it's another little act of subversion that I like. So I think I'm, mm-hmm. you know, it's my own little wave of being a punk, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those those are sort of the basics uh, of the veil, more or less. And so we want to jump into the cascade, which uh, is gives more concrete setting, things like that. So So tell us about cascade, what that is. Yeah, the one of the things that the veil is most criticized for is the fact that it's not hyper focused on one thing, so it can't do something um, like one thing perfectly, kind of thing. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of people didn't know that it was just a first step in a design goal, so I think it'll make a lot more sense now. But um, now with Cascade, I've introduced another mechanic, which is flashing back and. Uh, I've modified beliefs um, mm. for the reward system to okay. uh, questions. So it's sort of like a runny kind of thing, if you know that game, um, mm, okay. where you're specifically trying to have these three questions answered. And one of them is about uh, an introspective thing, uh, specifically like your body, uh, an extra, um, what you might call it, a thing about the setting, and then one that is sort of just your own bag, whatever you want to go after. And that's oh, how okay. you get XP as you resolve these things. But the the catch is that it's further in the future than the veil, and everybody is in what I'm calling slacks. Um, if people have read Altered Carbon, it's like sleeves, where people move in and out of the body. And it's a, it's a very um, criticized <laughs> trope of <laughs> cyberpunk, because... Um, it's very white male to be like, my body is, is passe, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter to me. Um, so I've made one of the questions specifically focus on how was moving into this body, uh, like changed or modified your identity in some way so that it actually, um, is something that you explore within the fiction instead of it just being like, you know, I'm in this body now and now I'm in this body and now I'm in this body and everything's the same. Um, I also think it would be interesting because uh, a lot of people that I've met find it hard to uh, jump into another uh, gender identity for a character. And Mm. I think this gives you the kind of fictional justification to be floundering and figure it out yourself uh, and play one, right? So if you you have a hang-up playing a female protagonist, well, you could just jump in and say, like, I'm a male, but I got... Um, decanted into a slack that is female now and I'm just figuring it out and I don't know what that's going to mean to my identity right but we'll we'll yeah. figure it out together um, so yeah it's it's very much taking the cognitive load off of the MC as well where beliefs are pretty heavy you know like if you've played Burning Wheel you know how it's like ah <laughs> yeah. these people <laughs> why won't they just figure out their beliefs themselves right <laughs> why do I have to keep prompting potting them and stuff right I think it's different because in, in PBTA you have so much uh, agency to frame the scene that you want in order to explore the question and the belief in the veil so it's a little different but it's the same in that there's a lot more cognitive load on the MC and now I'm moving that to a PC front so that all the PCs will have to um, think about the questions that they want answered about this world and go and answer them themselves and to that effect they have a flashback so if you um, 
you know, if we use the example of shooting somebody in the alley or whatever again, and mm-hmm. you have an idea about uh, answering a question, then with that same role that you used for the move to, you know, shoot the guy, you could also tack on the flashback scene and say, like, in the past, I think I remember shooting somebody like this as well, and it's revealed, you know, this about my character, and I get XP for that. And then we don't have to roll again as well. It just adds emotional spikes um, by taking the highest die and minusing it, and you just add it to the emotion spike that you just rolled. So they it also simulates the sort of, like... um, the thing in the, the trope in the movies where when they have that flashback, they also kind of freak out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like that. Like I, I'm really angry at this person and I'm shooting them and maybe you're like, I don't know, why am I angry? And then if you think it's interesting that in the past, maybe you know why you're angry and you have a flashback scene and tie it to it at the same time. And then you get XP for it. Uh, and the MC is just like, got their hands behind their head being like, oh yeah, <laughs> didn't have to do anything, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And then I've also introduced more playbooks and the playbooks are very much designed more to bring the culture and the society to life uh, more so than the veil. It's all about um, emergent stuff, basically. It's what I got interested in for Cascade so that we don't have to have these... Uh, definitions for it especially because we're even further in the future now so we're taking whatever setting we had in the veil and we're moving these characters to the future into different bodies and they're having to answer these questions about everything around them and themselves which is very cyberpunk in itself and then they also have a flashback mechanic to help them do that um and then uh, it's the sort of natural progression for the veil that I have. And that's why it's sort of uh, the second step in the design goal instead of just a supplement uh, in my mind. Okay. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on what some of the next steps are in this design plan already, or is it still kind of nebulous? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've kind of mapped it out. Um, The third one is going to be even more in the future where it'll be altered carbon and uh, they'll be legit other colonies um, on different planets and stuff like that. And it'll, and it'll be focusing on what that means for humanity. So the, the veil is sort of like the setup uh, cascade is all about asking questions about your own identity. And then the third one will be all about asking questions about humanity. And then the fourth supplement is going to be sort of a microscope thing where you're actually Uh, playing out sessions of each of these things on a timeline and mapping them out so that you're creating an overall uh, story and taking it to where that process is going as well. So you could say, like, I just played three sessions of The Veil. You could put that on, like, your rising action or, or whatever, right? It doesn't have to be a focused timeline. And as you play out more and more of the sessions for each of the three games, you could bounce along the timeline and put them into the overall, you know, timeline of what your actual game is going to look like. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's the <laughs> overall design goal, and that's why it had to be modular. <laughs> if if yeah. I had tried to do that in one game, I think I would have, you know, been working on it forever. And then I also <laughs> realized that some people just don't want that, right? Some people just want to be jumping into Cascade and maybe not play the veil at all. And some people... Yeah want to have this overall experience and they'll be able to have that as well. So, you know, I'm trying to make it um, appeal to everyone somewhere. And it also should be um, more telling of the basic moves and stuff like that. People are like, it's not necessarily super um, cyberpunk moves kind of thing, but it kind of needed to be more generic because I don't know what your cyberpunk is going to look like. Mm-hmm. If you follow it along with Cascade and the next one, um, it needed to be like that so I could tack on the extra moves without it being a huge cognitive load on people yeah. and uh, take it from there kind of thing. Awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. And um, 
You have a quick start out for Cascade right now that people can take a look at, right? Yeah, it's free, and uh, we also just put it on drive-thru as well. So if you haven't found the link to it uh, for the Google Drive, I think it is, you Mm -hmm. can always just search for it on drive-thru and you'll have it forever. It's going to be free for for you know the foreseeable future so awesome yeah cool i think um i think on the modifier twitter we shared the the google link um somewhere it should be pretty easy to find uh (laughs) yeah but but i'll i'll put up the drive-through one also um Mm -hmm. i i like the quick start because uh, a lot of people wanted an example of like okay i see this toolkit for the veil but i'm not necessarily super confident in how i might assemble it so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, this is how I would do Ghost in the Shell, essentially. <laughs> and that's what the quick start is. And it also has two new playbooks called the Aesthetic and the Percipient. And mm. um, they're very much like the the Percipient is, is essentially altered carbon. It's to Takeshi. And um, the Aesthetic is from the Summer Prince, which has um, got the protagonist as an artist who really affects basically yeah. all of her culture. Uh, through her art and that's what the aesthetic's about and then I was thinking uh, you know that way people can see the new flashback mechanic they can see the two new playbooks um, there's a little bit of new art in there and then they could also play test it uh, for us and get back to me on what they think about these new playbooks I've got a couple new uh, other playbooks that I'm working on and I'm also working on something called uh, plugins which are basically compendium classes so themes and ideas that are not as strong as a whole uh, playbook idea, but could be um, tacked on to playbooks for additional fictional stuff. Like I've got the carrier, which uses viruses to modify their biology, that kind of stuff. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. So heroes, you've got some stuff you can go look at and play with and play test uh, if, if you haven't yet played the veil or want to get a, a little more understanding of what the cascade is um and depending on exactly when this episode comes out the kickstarter for cascade will be just beginning or will be beginning soon um so we should be early in its in its run sometime in the middle of may is there anything that you want to to talk about about the campaign in particular um yeah i'm really excited about hiring a PhD student from uh, a Canadian university to actually unpack the genre as as well. So you'll have a piece in actual cascades telling you like, Hey, this is the traditional tropes of cyberpunk. Here's Mm. some post cyberpunk stuff. Here's what's appealing um, and really sort of melds well with cascade and the veil, how you can use them, how you can subvert them and uh, stuff like that. Um, so it'll be really cool to have that in the game. I think it'll bring a ton of value. Um, and then as far as stretch goals, I'm going to have people come up with adventure starters uh, and settings uh, and have those in the actual Ooh. Cascade book as well. So it's Very not... Very cool. Uh, it, it always kind of like irks me when there's all these cool stretch goals, but they never make it into the book. So I'm going to try <laughs> to get them all actually in the book. And I've already compiled one that's the um, Taipei setting, and I've sort of inverted the traditional cyberpunk stuff in it already, whereas it's a it's a mega city, but I've extrapolated from what Taipei is doing right now with um, actually being pretty progressive with eco-friendly technology mm-hmm. and made it sort of like its own... Um, it's it's kind of like its own bubble in in the world, and it's very eco friendly. And uh, instead of the predominant class being up top in the mega structures, they're actually living uh, in the the um, what you call it, like the furthest down in, in the city, because mm. they want to be close to the earth. And there's all this like biotech down there. And there's all these um, very organic looking structures and they've sort of melded really well with nature. And then all the low caste people are actually high up so they can look down and see this really natural, beautiful place that they'll, you know, probably never get to. And the only way to get there is sort of to like fall. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I've prepared a bunch of different stuff like that. 
uh, on it, and as well as the Adventure Starter, which is taken also from Altered Carbon. It's sort of like a murder mystery. What, like, how could you kill somebody that essentially is immortal because there's slacks now? Um, mm. And the the protagonists are going through that kind of thing. And I don't even... It, it, like, as an Adventure Starter, I mean, it's really just a, a starter. I have the threats set up for you, and they get hired, and then I'm like, and go. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, oh. I'm I'm picturing an exact kind of thing like that, like a setting and a hook and maybe a couple threats in there and uh, have those applied to the stretch goal people. So if, you, if the Taipei thing doesn't appeal to you, then there'll be a bunch of other ones that you can just select from and get going if you need like a one shot or a two shot or something like that. And then it also provides sort of a framework for people that uh, want to build their own setting and adventure hook for, for whatever they're doing. Excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, and do we need the veil uh, to, to enjoy the cascade book? Yeah. I, I'm okay. not going to rewrite uh, all the stuff on how to play apocalypse world. It's, it's yeah. going to be <laughs> a setting. Um, cool. Uh, or sorry, not a setting. It, it'll be a supplement in the true sense of the word in that you'll need the core game to, to do it. And um, as with the Veil, Cascade will be uh, the cheapest on um, Kickstarter as well. I'm a big yeah. believer in making sure that backers are treated differently than customers in the future. I, I think that they're not the same. I think that they should be uh, rewarded in some way for backing a project and not just it being like a pre-order system. I really, yeah. I really want people to, to realize that I'm very grateful for them to help make my, you know, like literally my dreams come true. Right. So Aww. the very least that I can do is give them the book for like five or $10 cheaper. I think the veil was $10 cheaper, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was cause I think it sells for 35 American mm -hmm. Or f something like that. It's either it's five yeah. five or ten dollars cheaper, if, especially if you jumped in on the early bird uh, thing. Then you then you got a killer deal because awesome. we were initially projecting the veil to be two hundred pages, and you you don't have any pages. It ended up being so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I I really want to highlight that, you know, the the backers to us are not just the same as customers because i think that's a trend that i'm seeing in mm -hmm. in it and I, it's not one that i'm particularly fond of at the moment like if i can just get your game a week later or even the same week just pre-order it along with the backers and then, then why did you need me right like yeah <laughs> i don't yeah. i don't understand what the model is other than i understand that you need the cash to make the game but you could have just pre-ordered it or whatever, right? Like I, it's a marketing tool and, and that's great too. But I, I really think that in order to keep Kickstarter as like a viable platform, that creators should be both ethical and treating their backers as different people than just customers. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, that link will either be uh, already have been shouted about on the Twitter or, or will be shortly or in, definitely will be in the show notes. Um, so keep an eye out for that. And is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we talked about? Um, go out there and, and read some cyberpunk that you've never heard of. <laughs> yes. Uh, where, where can we find you on the internet and maybe get a book recommendation? <laughs> Um, I'm most, uh, like most game designers, I guess I, I hole up in, on G+. Hey, that seems to where, be where everyone is for some reason. Um, <laughs> None of us know why. <laughs> yeah, we just we just like it, I guess. But uh, I have a whole, um, whatchamacallit, collection dedicated to consuming cyberpunk. I do weekly reviews on uh, books and movies and things like that um, on cyberpunk. So if you scroll down to the very beginning, you can see the inception of it all the way to, I think the latest thing that I reviewed was her and got a whole bunch of people oh, angry, yeah. uh, classifying that as cyberpunk. That was pretty fun. Cause I, I posted <laughs> it to the, 
the cyberpunk community in G plus and people were like, that's not cyberpunk. And I was like, it could not be more cyberpunk. <laughs> cause like, Oh man. Yeah. Cause her is uh, like, he, he's, he's very much a punk, right? Like he yeah. rejects all the notions of society to pursue his heart with a new form of life that nobody knows anything about, least of all him. And from the flip side of things, she's also a punk because she starts out as a subservient life form that serves, mm -hmm. you know, literally is serving the needs of her user to becoming a fully fledged, uh, basically more human than human person who succeeds humanity and leaves yeah. them behind. And the notion that, um, you know, cyberpunk can't be a, a love story was, you know, completely obliterated by that movie. I think like it was, it was so good. And, um, the cyber aspect was reiterated the entire time, right. With his, you know, futuristic techno gizmos mm -hmm. to the fact that it was set in Shanghai to the fact that mm -hmm. he, um, is communicating with this person that we see grow the entire time. And I really liked that, uh, it was so candid about like sexuality and yeah. relationships. Like when they give it a go, using that surrogacy and it just doesn't work for him. Uh, it could have been a very different scene, right? Where it could have been very Hollywood and he's just like, yeah, woohoo, you know, mm -hmm. let's go do this thing instead of being like, this doesn't feel like you. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that caused an uproar. So if you want, <laughs> if you want to see me stir the, the nest sometimes, or just see me um, in general review cyberpunk stuff, I'm always, reading more and consuming more so you can reach me there and on all social media i'm just fraser simons i i, I was lucky enough to just get my name awesome yeah <laughs> i like it when that works out mm -hmm. <laughs> well thank you fraser so much this has been really awesome thanks yeah i've been a long time listener i think since its inception to be honest i i'm pretty sure i've heard every episode of modifier oh thank you <laughs> I'm going to die now. <laughs> Thank you again to Fraser for chatting with me and for doubling my to-read list. All his links are in the show notes, and definitely reach out to him for recommendations or just to chat about the genre. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier on Twitter at Modifier Podcast or at the headquarters at modifierpodcast.tumblr.com. You can send comments, questions, or contribution suggestions to modifierpodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes as that helps more people find us. Modifier is a proud member of the One Shot Podcast Network, an amazing family of RPG podcasts that includes incredible shows like One Shot, Campaign, Backstory, and Talking Tabletop. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then. <laughs>